Well, hi, everybody. So good to be together this morning. Uh, I know it's a big weekend around here uh, with Boulder Boulder and Memorial Day, so how great to be together. Special welcome again to you if you are visiting or in town for graduation or anything like that. My name is Jane. I'm the pastor for Discipleship and Community, and many of you know that we today are in week five of a 15-week series on Revelation. And I just love that we have just jumped in as a church, exploring the heights and depths of this really amazing book of Scripture. And I don't know about you, but I'm definitely seeing that this, our study together, is affecting my day-to-day life, and I hope it has for you as well. And as we take this other big plunge today into the next section of Revelation, I just want you to know that I already was feeling the weight of bringing this uh, before you, and then the Lord saw fit to give me this personal object lesson about it this week that I'll be telling you about in a little bit, and apparently I needed to learn some things as I was preparing. But I want to say before um, we get in here, the Boulder Boulder, how many of you are doing it tomorrow? Boulder Boulder, awesome. So many of us gather in section 209. It's at the end zone, and dozens and dozens of First Press people go there to celebrate Memorial Day. So if you're looking for people to sit with, come and join us in section 209. But because so many people are visiting, kids are with us today, it's a family Sunday, I just want to remind us of some of the foundational things that we've talked about in Revelation. They've been so helpful for me as we come to uh, this study. So ultimately, more than anything else, what we have been learning is that Revelation is about Jesus. We would say it's a revelation about who more than what or when or how. I think we have some slides for this up in the booth there. I know there's a lot to follow along with today. But we've also learned that Revelation, which originally was called an apocalypse, really is uh, an unveiling. It's a peering back behind the curtain to show us what is and what is to come. And what God has given us here is not meant to scare us or to frighten us, but actually to be clarifying, to encourage us in our life today, to give us hope and purpose. We've also said Revelation is not a linear chronological timeline, as often people want to correlate things that are happening uh, historically, current events. We're really not meant to make those connections between the global economy and the political system and global leaders. Instead, what Revelation is doing is giving us this big picture of the time between Jesus' first coming and his return, and we live in that time. And what the revelation is meant to show us is that even when it's hard to see, God is sovereign over all of this. So rather than a linear timeline, what we're seeing is that the revelation is spiral in nature with themes that occur over and over again. And we're given glimpses of the end even when we're in the middle, and we're going to see that in today's passage. And then finally, we're to understand revelation as the conclusion of this whole eternal story of God and God's kingdom that God is bringing all of human history to this great and glorious goal, the second coming of Jesus, when he will make all things new, to reign forever in this new city with the people of his kingdom. And so these four principles have been bedrock for us as we've sought to dive in and move around and wrestle with the things that we see in Revelation. But I also love that someone has depicted the whole Bible and Revelation I'm especially grateful for and Lego vignettes. I don't know how many of you have seen this, the Brick Bible, but just to catch us up, here are a few vignettes from last week. So we see first the throne room. 
the seven blazing lamps, the sea of glass, the four creatures covered in eyes. Then we see the elders in white casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Then we see John weeping because no one is worthy to open the scroll and tell him what it says. And then we see this one is just Revelation 5-9, the lamb, the slain lamb. You can see the blood coming out of his neck and his seven eyes and his seven horns. And he's holding this, this, holding the scroll with the seven seals. And it says he is worthy to open the scroll because of his blood sacrifice, that he has purchased people from every tribe and tongue and nation and made them to be a kingdom of priests, to serve God and to reign on the earth. And then we get this glimpse of the end. Even here in the middle of Revelation, added to the heavenly worship, we have this picture of every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. A picture of the new creation crying out in worship, adding their praise to what's happening in heaven. And here is where we left off with this reminder that the slain lamb is on the throne, Jesus Christ, reigning victorious in the new city, making all things new, and all his people will live forever in his presence. So thank you, Lego Bible, for getting us up to speed. But it's actually really important for us to remember where we have already been and what we've been shown about Jesus and his reign as we turn to what's ahead. And many people would consider this next, section, this next section to be the place where things get really crazy and really difficult. And on the one hand, it does, as we will see, but I've also found it to be incredibly devotional as well, and I hope it will be that way for you. So let's pray, and we will pick up where we left off. Oh God, we do add our voices to the worship that surrounds you even now. And we here say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Oh God, would you teach us of these things of you today for your sake and for ours. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the Lion and the Lamb, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. We're going to begin by reading chapter 6, the whole of chapter 6, where we're going to see the first six of the seven seals opened. Just as a bit of a preview, if you want to open up your Bible and turn there, Revelation, again, is the last book in your Bible, and if you find chapter 6, you'll be right where we are. We're going to hear about evil and suffering being unsealed, if you will. And we're given images of what often is referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They are referenced often in literature and art. I even heard a sportscasting uh, very famous thing from the 1940s that someone recited from memory this morning of the four horsemen the Notre Dame and Navy game. But they're in movies, they're in comic strips, we see them in political satire. Many believe that the horsemen, the black horsemen in Tolkien's um, Lord of the Rings were shaped uh, from his awareness of this part of Revelation. But these four horsemen have certainly found their way into our cultural awareness. But we first hear of the four horsemen in the Old Testament in Zechariah, where they were sent out by God, the same colors of horses and everything, to patrol the earth. And this is another one of those more than 500 references that Eric talked about last week. And they remind us again that the whole story of God from creation is covered and held here by God's eternal reign. So here we are in Revelation 6. Stay with me. There's a lot here, but we are going to do it. So here we go. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, 
Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. We're just going to dive right in because we have a lot uh, to look at today. So let's begin by asking, who are these four horsemen? I have been wading through lots of different really amazing uh, theological perspectives. And what I want you to know is what I'm offering to you today is my very best, most faithful understanding of what is in here for us. But there are lots of perspectives. So my best understanding is that these riders and these horses represent both human and superhuman powers of evil and suffering and judgment that God both allows and that God sends forth onto the earth. And I know that that in and of itself raises questions, and we'll come back to that. But let's start with these four horsemen. So the first, the white horse, represents conquest. And he is so important that I actually want to set him aside for a minute and come back. So the red horse here represents war and strife. Jesus told us from the time of his coming until the time of his return, there will always be wars and rumors of wars. People and nations killing and enslaving other people and nations. The third, the black horse, represents famine. Barley and wheat that are referenced here were basic staples. And here there's an inflation rate of over 800% at the time of John's prophecy here. It's a sign that the basic sustenance needed is out of reach, that the poor are suffering. And this reference to the wine and the oil likely calls out the rich and the powerful who are actually able to continue to live with plenty 
while others starve and don't have access to basic resources. And those who have their plenty even at the expense of the starvation of others. And the fourth horse is, is the color pale as death, sometimes represented green like sickness. And he represents death and decay, pestilence and death of all kinds. And together, these horses really graphically depict that our world is filled with evil in all sorts of forms. There's ecological evil, political strife, economic strife, societal evil, and so on. It just surrounds us on every side. Now, on the one hand, it seems that these horsemen illustrate simply the natural consequences of a sinful humanity, that God is allowing human sin to come full circle and even turn in on itself and self-destruct. In the same way that if you ignore the natural laws of gravity and step off a cliff, disaster will follow. And if humanity ignores God's moral laws, really to love God and to love others, Disaster follows just as surely. War and famine and pestilence and death are natural consequences of a humanity that seeks to be on the throne rather, to live, rather than to live under the throne, as we have been talking about it. Our denial of God and his ways. But it's not just that. What we see here is the horsemen are also given power and authority beyond what is human. The coming of death in Hades, the place of the dead, brings suffering beyond any human power or will. And we see that the powers and principalities of evil that enslave humanity are beyond us. They're otherworldly. And often we do see them intertwined with these evils of war and pestilence and death. But it certainly seems that God both allows humanity's desire for power and conquest to take its natural course, and that he also brings and sends out, unseals this supernatural power that does cause suffering and death. And it's hard for us to understand God sending devastation, God sending this judgment on the creation that he made, and we know that he loves and that he came to save. And here's what one theologian said about this. He said, Revelation has no theodicy. I mean, I just added the definition of theodicy. It's the defense of God's goodness and omnipotence in the face of evil. So Revelation is not defending God's goodness to help us sort this all out into neat piles. It simply knows that history in its present form is not history as God wills it. And that even the history that God does not will is subservient to his larger purpose. God knows and we know that the world is not as it should be. There is suffering of so many kinds on so many levels, and certainly what is represented by the horsemen is already running wild and free around our world. So here's what I find so fascinating. In the midst of this truth-telling about the evil in humanity and about the evil in uh, the powers and principalities of the enemy, most people identify this first rider on the white horse as Jesus, dressed in white, wearing a crown, and carrying a bow of conquest. God wants us to know that 
when it seems that evil and disaster are charging and riding all around us, that he is in control. Even when the powers of evil are running rampant, he is in control, and they will not win in the end. And what's so uh, interesting to me is that this bow is a symbol of something that's really, really significant, and it represents the bow of the covenant rainbow, actually, that God made with Noah, the bow of the rainbow. And in the flood, all the way back in Genesis 6, it says that the wickedness of the human race had become so bad that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were evil all the time for everyone but Noah and his family. And God's heart was deeply troubled and grieved by the wickedness of his creation. It was so bad that he destroyed what he had made and cleansed the earth from sin to begin again. Yet much like we're going to see in the next chapter of Revelation, even when this cleansing, when this happened, God sealed Noah and his family in the ark. He protected them and restored the land so that they could begin again on the earth as his people. And God gave to Noah and his family the sign of the rainbow as a sign of this covenant promise, but also a sign of his power over evil and his power to restore. And the exact same word that's used in, in Genesis 6 for the bow of the rainbow is the exact same word that we have for the bow that's in the white rider's hand on a white horse. And thankfully in Genesis, God promised never again to wipe out all living creatures. But this conquering rider on the white horse, carrying the bow, is a sign to us that Jesus will conquer evil, that he will bring justice on the earth, and he will restore the earth for the people of his kingdom. And at the end of Revelation, again, remember, it's all about Jesus. In chapter 19, we meet this rider on the white horse again, and he and his army behind him come and defeat the great beast in the battle. Sorry for the spoiler, but I bet you knew that. So I just want to read this part of Revelation 19. I saw, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on, on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Wow. Power, wrath against evil, justice. Perhaps this fills out part of Jesus' character that we sometimes overlook. The one who is faithful and true, the one who is the slain and sacrificial lamb, also has power over everything over the powers and the principalities, over sin itself, and he will bring that power and authority against evil and restore all things forever and ever. When I hear that, my heart gets stirred up because I want to be counted with him. I want to be counted among his people, to be in his kingdom, to be a servant in his court. Psalm 84 says it like this, 
Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And that is how I feel when I see the strength and the power and the justice of Jesus. He holds it all. It also makes me want to get a thigh tattoo with his name on it because I just think that's awesome. But this vision of judgment and sin, as difficult as it is, is really intended to be a word of hope for us. That when you are suffering, when it seems like the darkness is winning and running out ahead, God is on his throne and he will redeem what has been broken and lost and ravaged by sin. And this passage, again, as difficult as it is, also acknowledges that evil will affect us in this life. We live between the first coming of Jesus and his return. And we are touched by suffering and evil. We know that all too well. And what we saw in the opening of the fifth seal, it's even magnified. The martyrs who had been killed because of their continued testimony about Jesus. They're crying out in heaven. They're already on the other side. They cry out for vengeance. And though they have to wait a little longer, and though we hear more suffering will come, their justice comes. Because what we see is after the sixth seal is opened, the created order convulses before the judgment of God. There is no question. It says everyone from kings to slaves are in fear, knowing that the appearance of God and his Messiah are close by. And I think this might be the most loaded sentence, perhaps the middle piece for us to hear about this morning. Because what they ask as they cry out is this, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? It's a question for us. Who can withstand the wrath of God? And that really is what chapter 7 answers. The answer is that those who can withstand the wrath of God are those who are sealed by the living God. And we see this amazing picture of the angels suspending the judgment as it comes and coming down, and all those who are servants of God are on their forehead marked with the seal of God. Even as suffering is being unsealed, those who belong to the Lamb are sealed like Noah and his family who were sealed into the ark, like the Israelites in Egypt when their doorposts were sealed with the blood of the lamb, the angel of death passed over them. So the angel seals all of God's servants that they will not suffer God's judgments. We see again this amazing numerology that 12,000 from all the 12 tribes, 144,000, a great multitude. None of God's people are missed. They are all included, and they are given white robes, and they stand before the throne, and they belong. They have been sealed in Christ. And what is so beautiful is not only are they sealed and protected from judgments, which is an amazing promise, but we also see this in Revelation 7. This is how the people of God, dressed in white robes, sealed by the Lamb, says this, They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. It's this word of relationship and care. 
Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You hear, even in this little piece, how those wrongs are being made right. Even the ecological wrongs and the things that put us in harm's way, that they are made right in the presence of the one who has sealed us, who has given us white robes to wear. There is no sin, no suffering, forever and ever. This is such an amazing promise for us. And before we end, I want us to think about what does this have to do with our day-to-day life? How does it impact you today as you walk out of this place into all the different things that you uh, will do? Because it should. That's what God intends, that this promise, what's been shown to us, is meant to impact the way that we live here and now. So I mentioned that God gave me this object lesson this week. And um, I'll just say, our family lives, I think, with enough margin to navigate pretty well the usual things that stress a family system. Every once in a while, you know this idea of margin, that you kind of live in the middle, you have these margins in case you need to spread out or something stressful. So every once in a while, something pushes us toward the edge, toward the margins, and it feels uh, really tight. Um, And again, I'm not talking about real tragedy here. This is just like a day-to-day mom with three kids, like being faithful in the day-to-day. But there's this one thing that I've always held in my awareness as a thing that just would push me beyond the edge of my margin, like of what my family system could handle, what my personal system could handle. So you might have your own version of what that is. It just feels like, oh, no, 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 I could not deal. So this week, not only was Scott traveling for work, it's the last week of mayhem. Two of our kids have birthdays this week, so we have parties and cakes and the last day of school and out-of-town guests. I have a big preaching task. It's snowing in May. All the things, you know, you have them. But on a whim, on Wednesday night, I just said to everybody, we are going to get haircuts. Everybody get in the car, and we went to one of those places where you just walk in, 15 bucks, you just all sit in the chair, cutting our hair. So we're sitting there getting our haircuts. My hair is like dripping wet. We're going for it. And then all of a sudden, the woman who has been cutting Sweet Jed's hair was standing right next to me. And she says, I cannot complete your son's haircut because he has head lice. (laughs) No! It was like the thing. It was the thing. Like that is my thing. Give me like broken bones, pink eye, food poisoning, just not bugs that eat your scalp and are pesticide resistant and jump and multiply by the thousands. That's just like, I can't do it. I can't do it. So poor Jed, he's right over here. He has this great new haircut. They wouldn't even finish his haircut. It was too dangerous. Too dangerous. So he is such a trooper. We went and bought hair clippers. He has this awesome new haircut. Uh, And I can't even tell you the loads of laundry that we've done. About Friday morning when I'm trying to suffocate all the pestilence on my Uh, couch with sheets and all that thing. I finally asked the Lord, do you have anything that you want to say to me about this? (laughs) Does Revelation have anything that you want to say about head lice? Like maybe I'm supposed to pay attention in a different way. And without delay, this word pestilence came to mind. I'm not kidding you. And I remembered that the fourth rider brought pestilence. And I thought, really? Really? Is how we're talking about? 
But pretty quickly, I found myself, and I know this is like a really small, silly example, but I think that's part of the point, that our life here is meant to be touched by what we are seeing as we have this vision. And pretty quickly, as I was frustrated and doing all these things, I found myself celebrating that one day we will live in a restored earth where not even the bugs will be wrong. Nothing will be wrong. There will be no head lice, no embarrassment, no fear of bringing pestilence on other children. And again, it feels like such a small example in the magnitude of what we've been shown. But in our day-to-day lives, if we can hold this awareness from war to bullying to famine to broken relationships, that God is doing something on an eternal scale to make everything right. And all is not well here and now. We are touched by everything from pestilence to famine and war and death. But it is being made perfect. And I just want to say, I see in so many of you, the saints and servants of God, this patient endurance that you have in this life, in your day-to-day, but also in your suffering. And I believe it's this kind of hope that gives you that patient endurance to persist, to persevere in what is before you. And I want to end this morning really remembering what we saw at the beginning. Because Jesus on the throne, from our perspective here and now, he has already endured the wrath of God. He has already defeated death. God has already poured out all his wrath on him to save his creation. And he has already conquered. He is the victor. And all who have put their trust in him are sealed in his grace forever and ever. That if you are in Christ, you have been sealed. You have been given a white robe. You are part of his people and his kingdom. And it gives us hope and perspective that we might endure with patience and hope in this life. So whatever it is that you walk back out to, whatever it is that you hold that is a part of your own suffering, let me encourage you to continue to know that you have been sealed in Christ, that he is with you and for you, and that we have this hope for what is to come when all will be made right. So let's encourage one another in that. Let me pray for us. Oh God, you are so gracious to show us these pictures of your reign, of your power, of your love. God, I pray that you would be sustaining us. These gifts that you've given to us of your presence here and now, the company of your Holy Spirit, peace of living in your presence, would be part of what helps us endure with patience and hope. So we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your power. Pray, Lord, that we would walk forth from this place knowing that we are sealed, that we belong to you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.